0: This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, I speak with Chris Hastrup, a student in Washington, D.C., who holds dual Danish and American citizenship. What does he think of President Trump's gambit to buy Greenland? And what's it like in Greenland anyway? And I'll present my September Democratic primary power rankings. The field is getting smaller, thank God. And now, The Nexus. Two months ago, I debuted a new feature on the Nexus, and it's titled The 2020 Democratic Primary Power Rankings. Since this podcast episode is dropping right about September 1st, it's time to update the power rankings and see where the candidates are. At press time, we still had 20 in the race, but that number is subject to go down by the time you listen to this episode. For our purposes, I will focus on the top 15. These men and women I predict will stay a spell as they say in the South at number 15, Michael Bennett dormant in August. Bennett will be joining John Hickenlooper soon in the unemployed presidential candidates from Colorado line at number 14, Marianne Williamson. It was glorious while it lasted, but the end is looking nearer and nearer for the author and spiritual guru. Marianne brought us love and roses and girl power. She was glamorous and earnest, ethereal and spry. But her presidential quest is almost over. I will not lie. Number 13 belongs to Steve Bullock. The Montana governor probably got into the race too late to make the impact he could have made earlier, and his media coverage has faded a bit in the month of August. Bullock may be poised to be a cabinet secretary in a Democratic administration, as he is definitely a voice to watch. At number 12, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi's stellar debate performance in July may be the last time we see her on such a stage as her polling numbers haven't been quite good enough. She may make a solid VP though, young, Hindu, a woman, veteran, and she seems to be shedding the baggage that plagued her campaign earlier in the year. Number 11 is Tom Steyer. In only his second month in the race, billionaire Tom Steyer has made quite a splash, By spending millions of dollars already and at the same time railing against corporate money and politics, Steyer is poised to be a major player in at least the early nominating contests this winter. He's a bit stilted in speaking style, but then again, so was Michael Bloomberg, and that billionaire bought three terms as mayor of New York. Expect him to rise higher next month. Into the top 10 at number 10 is Amy Klobuchar. In an informal poll I ran this month, she barely edged Tulsi Gabbard as a potential VP choice for one of the top candidates. She is unlikely to win the nomination, but the Minnesota senator could bring a lot of value to the Democratic ticket. No one is talking about her staff imbroglio anymore, but her feisty style could be channeled effectively as a running mate. Let's see if that happens. Number nine, number nine is Andrew Yang. A triumph already at the first as the first Asian candidate to be taken seriously and to make three debates in a row. Yang's style is not inspiring. I've yet to see him give a motivating speech, but his technocratic presentation provides a contrast to mostly everyone else in the race. Surely and steadily, the Yang gang continues to grow as more people contemplate Yang's basic universal income plan. At number eight, Julian Castro. After falling as low as number 12 in April, Castro has been slowly moving back up as decent debate performances have allowed the former Obama secretary to build an infrastructure for his campaign. He's been all over the place on issues, trying to find that one spark to propel Iowa and New Hampshire, but Castro's assertive style holds potential this cycle. Number seven, Cory Booker. He's in the third debate and impressed many with his rehearsed critique of Joe Biden. It's still unclear what Booker is running on, other than attempted takedowns, but he continues to hang on. That breakout moment may come in the fall, and Booker remains a good speaker. At number six, Pete Buttigieg. We didn't hear a peep from Pete this month. If he didn't have so much money in the bank, I might rank him below Booker, because it's unclear what the South Bend mayor is doing. Supporters assert he will roar back in the fall, but they also said Buttigieg would take the lead after the first and then the second debates too. We shall see if he can recapture the glory of February to April. As a friend remarked this month, perhaps Pete is really running for DNC chair. Number five is Beto O'Rourke. As morbid as this sounds, O'Rourke was reborn in the wake of the deaths in El Paso. Moments after the terror attack, O'Rourke was everywhere in the media, decrying the shooting in his hometown. This led to weeks of fiery rhetoric from Beto as he pummeled President Trump on multiple platforms. Coverage of the shooting began to die down by the end of the month and coverage of the Texan along with it. But for a shining few weeks, there was life in the struggling campaign. At number four, Kamala Harris. The halcyon days of late June seem a distant memory. In August, Harris was criticized for ostensibly backing away from her version of Medicare for all as she continued to experience fallout from Tulsi Gabbard's attack on her record as a prosecutor, but she knows how to adjust her talking points to the zeitgeist of the moment, so I wouldn't count the Californian out just yet. At number three, Bernie Sanders. In the last couple of weeks, Sanders has been gaining in the polls, and his $16 trillion, yes, trillion, climate change plan has been garnering lots of attention. It's a bombastic plan, but it's refocusing sorely needed media attention on his campaign. A strong Bernie is bad news for hopes of a Warren world conquest. Number two belongs to Elizabeth Warren. She keeps improving, assiduously courting the once doubtful Democratic establishment, drawing ever growing crowds and breaking 20% in some polls. Is there a glass ceiling for Warren? So far, no sign of that. And at number one, Joe Biden. The former vice president in the first part of the month seemed to emerge from the July debate with no damage at all, as his poll numbers stayed strong. There were some chinks in the armor near the end of August, however as two dubious polls suggested he was nearly tied with numbers two and three on this list. Is he? It's going to take more than a Monmouth poll with less than 300 people sampled and a whopping 6% margin of error to convince me. But if other legitimate polls show similar results, Joe Biden may be in for a dogfight. We will be right back. In the last couple of weeks, a highly unlikely target for the United States has emerged, and that is Denmark. Denmark? Such a peaceful, placid nation, right? They have a type of governance over Greenland, and President Trump suddenly wants to buy that Arctic yet North American nation. Denmark's Prime Minister said it was absurd Trump would float that idea, and that Greenland Foreign Ministry tweeted they were open for business, but not for sale. What is Greenland like? And what is Denmark like, for that matter? I'm joined in the studio by Chris Hastrup, a student at American University in Washington, who has the distinction of being a dual citizen of both the United States and Denmark. Chris Hastrup, welcome to The Nexus. Thanks for having me. Tell me about you a little bit. How did you come to be a dual citizen of Denmark
1: and the U.S.? So when I was born, my dad was still a Danish citizen, and my mom from Ohio. And so I was therefore naturally given citizenship of Denmark. Well, of course in the United States, that doesn't happen anymore. You Go abroad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've heard the news. Last yes, the last day.
1: <laughs> well, that's hopefully still up
0: for debate. So, so basically, where were you born? Uh, Boston. You were born in Boston, but why did Denmark allow you to be a citizen there if you weren't even
1: born there? Because my dad was still a Danish citizen. He immigrated over to the United States in 1992, and has since renounced the Danish citizenship in order to gain an American one, and is also now clearance. So,
0: Interesting. Interesting. And what's the benefit for you of being a citizen in both
1: places? So it means I <coughs> say I want to move back after get my degree here in the U.S. I can go back to Europe, get... Relatively cheap graduate degree in one year, just phenomenal compared to the, here in the United States, which takes two and four times the amount. That also means that I can easily move back to Denmark if I ever so please and live off their own welfare. It also means that I get a stipend just for being a student here in the United States. Really? Yes, it's pretty pretty
0: nice. <laughs> is it enough to live on? Yeah.
1: And and why does Denmark do that? Um, they just feel that when you're a student, you shouldn't be working, you should be focusing on your studies instead of in the U.S. where a lot of people have two jobs, which I have myself just so I can have a natural life
0: in Right, the U.S. Right. That's, uh, so that's a benefit of,
1: of Denmark. Would they be considered a socialist government? Sometimes people question their level of socialism, but according to most political philosophers, they are a type of social democracy. It's like uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, especially. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Are they able to pull that off because they only have, you know, four or 5 million
1: people? Yeah. So the population in Denmark is 5.7 million. And it comes from my understanding that they're able to pull this off because they have such a cultural homogeny there in a um, in country. Well, now it's starting to be questioned if they can maintain that with a large wave of immigrants or refugees coming in, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 20 years if they have to flip to more of the capitalistic side to be able to sustain that influx of population.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, have you ever even lived in Denmark? Yes, I lived there for three years when I was in high school. When you were in high school, and what was it like to... How was it for you having... You're, you were a citizen on one hand, but you really didn't grow up there, so...
1: Did people consider you a foreigner? How did that even work? Yeah, so I was considered the "quote unquote" American because no, I'm one of the only Americans that would actually move to Denmark rather than move from Denmark to the United States. But I grew up with my father still very Danish, so and I would go back every uh, couple weeks, no, for a couple weeks over the summer, and spend time with my family. So I still had a very good idea about the Danish culture and how they lived their life because I was raised in that in that way.
0: Right. And um, what do, I mean, in general, what do Danes think of Americans and Ameri-
1: in America itself and, and you and, and all that good stuff? If you saw the rate of which they consume Western media and general culture, you'd think that they'd love the United States. But if anything, it's a lot more of apathy than kind of wanting to get to know us more. It's, they see us as the kind of the dumb Americans, not exactly the most smart people in the world and un- undereducated and that kind of general. Of course, a lot of them want to move here because it's the land of opportunity. and still seen that way, but they're also very hesitant because of the culture that we have here.
0: Hmm. And you think that's gotten worse in recent years or
1: is that was that always the way it was when you were growing up? I mean, that's just how I saw it. I didn't really see it until I actually moved there, so I wouldn't really know. But definitely with the election of Trump, that has not helped our, uh, our outreach to different countries, especially Denmark. Interesting. Interesting. Um,
0: and speaking of Trump, our, our president, what you have been to Greenland. Yes. And um, I think, and as I said at the, at the outset, the president wanted to and still probably does want to buy Greenland. But I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what it's like. Can you tell me what the terrain is like? Who lives there? What do they
1: do? What's going on there? So Greenland is a largely, has a largely indigenous population. Very little outsiders come and stay there because it's so inhospitable to normal everyday life that Westerners Western, are uh, accustomed to. So it's very rocky, very desolate place where this number one resource is fishing. Of course, there have been studies that Greenland has the capacity to hold a lot of natural resources. Denmark, like we've spoken on the phone before, does not really have the capacity to be able to uh, mine those minerals, mine those iron ore that quote, unquote, may or may not be there. And so while they Greenland has been trying to attract attention, especially from Chinese investors and other countries, there's really no hard data, at least from my research, that would show that there's a significant amount of X, Y, or Z mineral or oil located in, or especially on Greenland.
0: And why, why does the president want it?
1: I would wager to guess it would have to do with global warming and the potential of a Northern sea passage that would link to both Russia and Europe that would cut down the time almost in half trying to transport Hmm. from the U.S. to Europe. This president doesn't
0: believe in global warming. How is that possible?
1: And that's where I start to question our president's uh, denial of global warming because if he is interested in buying this land, which has only been speculated to hold natural resources, there's no definite uh, information saying that there is, this is the only possibility that would even begin to entertain... A potential, pur- a potential purchase of Greenland. Right, right. Um, you've been there before. What, mm. what did you do while you were there? S- sightseeing, pretty much just became a typical tourist. Like, saw the ice caps, and which is pretty cool. Like, it's just pretty much a desert of white, and it's strangely beautiful. Like, if there's no trees. It's just rock and tundra, essentially. What would you compare it to in this country? Um, Alaska. Like if you go out towards like the coastal areas, which I've also been to, it's very similar, just lot less trees, a lot less mountains, just mostly flat archipelagos. and hmm. ice.
0: And I, I've read that there are, you know, upwards between 50 and 60,000 people that live there. I mean,
1: yes. what did they, what language do they speak? Um, they speak mostly their indigenous languages, but they also have still... English there because of tourism, then they also speak some Danish because technically Denmark is their overlord, but not. They're still very autonomous, like Denmark kind of lets them do what they want, and like they still pay the Danish printer over there, but that's the largest link between them and Denmark.
0: Now, you haven't been back there, obviously, since this no. imbroglio with, with President Trump, but Knowing what you know, what do you think the Greenlanders think about all of this? They probably just think it's
1: funny. Like, they're probably, if I were them, I would be worried about what the United States could potentially do to the indigenous population because of our history with our own indigenous populations, sectioning them off to small pieces of land that have very little significance to our indigenous populations. So, if I were them, I'd be very afraid of President Trump and his potential purchase. But,
0: and conversely, what is your, what, you may not have spoken to them about this, but you know your family. What, what would their thoughts about Trump be and, and this
1: pursuit by him? I, get, well, I Just imagining in my head right now, they're probably just shaking their heads like, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, <laughs> is this really worth the trouble? Like, he, President Trump is really just trying to push his boundaries right now. And it's, I think he's just trying to keep himself in the news cycle. I feel like this is just a political ploy just to get more attention.
0: And one thing that I was personally offended by, and it struck me more than I was expecting, I read the news reports about how the Queen of Denmark was upset and offended because so much um, preparation had gone into the state visit that Trump decided not to do because he was insulted by the nasty <laughs> prime minister. Um, it is, 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 how do Danes feel about their Royal family? And is that something that you share in was
1: being upset by as well? The Royal family, they're special, special people. We don't really take them seriously. Not like the English Royal family, like the English do with theirs, but they definitely have some significance. Like they're, just their line is goes way back and all that but generally we really don't pay much attention to them. like there's a big scandal with uh the queen's husband and him not wanting to be buried next to her because they never really considered him royalty oh. and he's 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 a big diva and things just kind of lost kind of respect for the royal family at this point mm-hmm. they're just kind of there and Symbolically. Oh, so
0: interesting. So that's, that's news to me. So I, I probably shouldn't be bothered by
1: this uh, this dismissal at all. Ultimately, I mean, if, if if you're the president of the United States, you should really take your allies' words as serious as they come. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, it's the queen, not, not necessarily the prime minister who's elected and is actually like put into power, but still...
0: Right, right. Um, did... When, when you know, your fellow Danes uh, talk about America, what are what are
1: some things they, they say? Well, some not very nice things. Uh, they just kind of see a country that is plagued with violence and discrimination and presidents who are ultimately underqualified under to lead. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the, those, like I said, who see it as a land opportunity, who see the potential that they could have if they were to move here. And so, and like I said earlier, like they're very conflicted about the United States because of those reasons, because of the gun violence, because of police brutality. But they also see, like, especially my dad who saw it, who came over here because he knew he could have a better future here. Mm-hmm. Especially for him and his and his soon to be children. Mm. So.
0: What do they think in Denmark about uh, Dunkin' Donuts?
1: I wouldn't really know. They probably have heard of it, but they've never really had it. Like once I remember when Starbucks first came to my town and first came to like Copenhagen airport, it's like a big fad. Turns out it's pretty garbage compared to in the US, but
0: <laughs> I had to throw that in there. But um, <laughs> it's. Uh, um, it is. I've been wondering, though. The angle I've been wondering is the idea that this even came up. Is Denmark as you is Denmark hurting for cash, or is it a wealthy nation? I mean, what what what's the problem here? I
1: mean, Denmark is by no means the wealthiest of countries. Like we do well, but it's also not Norway, where they have vast enough oil reserves and they can sell that well, pretty much. So, Denmark, but again, like we talked, it's a socialist country. It's a socialist democracy. And the money that they spend is usually pretty well managed. Like, they don't spend rigorous amounts of money on a brand new jet fighter that barely works like the US does. And so, like, money is not a problem, but it's also not exactly a luxury at this point.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Um, Some have said that. If the U.S.
1: doesn't get Greenland, China's going to. Do you think that's at all possible? China, so Greenland's actually been really trying to get attention from China, but Chinese investors just haven't invested that much. And also Denmark would, like, the Danish and the Greenland uh, governments have put in so much regulation for mining their own resources that it would be very difficult for any country, really, with as lax uh, regulations as China to really be able to put anything in. Mm, interesting.
0: Um, you have got dual citizenship as we have established. So I've got to ask, where do your sympathies lie?
1: See, this is going to come up my security, my security clearance questions at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, I mean, obviously, if both countries were to... Re- put out a draft like Denmark already has a conscription but that's different um if both countries were to put out a draft right now I'd probably have to say the US something because I have a better future here than I could over there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i also live the majority of my life here and I know most of my family here and it's also a big country like I could do a lot here that i wouldn't be able to do in Denmark. Of course, like I saw Europe to be able to go fall back onto like France, Germany, Spain, but who knows how long the Eurozone is going to stay up, mm-hmm. how long the Shenzhen region is going to stay up. So we'll see. Do people, you know, have concerns about that? Like the Eurozone especially? Um, not re- I mean, people I know aren't as politically in tune, especially who are from Denmark who are from Europe, aren't nearly as politically in tune as most kids from AU would be. Mm-hmm. I know definitely my my fellow students at AU and, and SIS are very concerned about the potential of the Eurozone crashing at some point. And for or our listeners, what SIS is? Uh, the School of International Service at American University. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And uh, and yes, a very politically motivated group of, of students, no question about it. and. Uh, well, I mean, when all is said and done, it sounds like you're you're proud to be an American.
1: Yeah, well. Or at least you know you're free. <laughs> it, it, it definitely... It's definitely hard to want to stay here sometimes when you have presidents and you have all this stuff that's going on. But ultimately, I, f- I have faith in the American system that one day we will be great. I never said that we are... That we have ever been... But I definitely feel like the United States has the potential to be one of the best countries around. We just need to be able to put the effort in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So.
0: That's, uh, that's good. As long as we have young leaders like yourself. Appreciate that. Um, well, Chris Hastrup, have a great semester ahead. And thank you for joining me in person on the Nexus. Thanks for having me, Art. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Special thanks to Ian Peele for production assistance on this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Be well.